It's Thursday, April 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Good news for those with federal student loans. The Biden administration has extended the suspension of loan payments through August 31st. This is the sixth time it has been extended. It's going to benefit about 41 million people so they don't accrue interest on their loans. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what to know about the extension and what politics are at play. Next, as people made the shift to working from home during the pandemic and starting new jobs because of the Great Resignation, everyone was using their cell phones instead of their old business line. And caller ID has been outing people. Because the caller ID is linked to the plan holder, many young professionals are being outed as still being on their parents' phone plan. Lindsay Ellis, careers reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, young men have been driving the rebound of movie theaters. As studios have begun to release big-budget movies in theaters, the films that have made the most money are those catering to this demographic. Young men have been more comfortable returning than older people and women after pandemic shutdowns. Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how this is influencing what entertainment looks like for everyone else. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Today I'm announcing my administration extending the pause on federal student loan repayments through August 31st of 2022. I know folks were hit hard by this pandemic, and though we've come a long way in the last year, we're still recovering from the economic crisis it caused. Joining us now is Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Danielle. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about some action that President Biden put into place. He has extended the pause on federal student loan repayments. The pause will now last through August 31st. Uh, it was initially set to expire in May, so uh, payments would have to have resumed. But uh, the decision was made to keep that extension going. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into it. Some politics, uh, you know, there have been some studies done saying that a lot of people would have faced some financial hardship if those payments resumed. So, Danielle, what do we know about this? Initially, you know, the president had maybe two extensions ago said this was going to be his final, but the economic kind of impact of the pandemic, rising inflation and, and seeing people not quite be back to the economics state where they were, at least his administration believes it would be best for them to start repayment, it has never fully materialized. So I think this is a move to say that we acknowledge that not everyone is back on their financial footing. We really want to make sure that they are there before we restart this system. And it has been a long time since borrowers have had to make payments on their student loans. So really preparing them with the proper messaging, what's the best payment plan for you if your circumstances have changed, if you lost a job, or even if you make more money, all of those things have to be taken into consideration before we can restart this system. So giving folks a bit more time, giving the actual federal government more time to really iron out any of the kinks is what we're seeing here. We got to make the proper distinction right as well. These are for federal student loan programs. This doesn't include if you got a loan from your straight from your university or from the state, other things. You know, this is just federal loans only. But how many people are being affected by this? We're thinking it's roughly about 41 million. And you're right. It is not 
all loans. It's definitely not private loans. And it even excludes some federal loans. There are some Fed loans that are backed by the federal government, but owned by private companies, such as guarantee agencies, such as some universities that aren't necessarily included in this pause. There are some defaulted loans, meaning people who haven't made payments on their loan for over a year that are owned by private lenders that actually are counted in this. So it's really important for borrowers who have federal student loans to ask their student loan servicer the particulars of whether or not they are covered by this. Most people at this stage should know (laughs) since they haven't had to make payments in almost three in in more than two years. But always good to have a clear sense of, you know, what what type of loan you have and all of kind of the benefits of it. And, you know, just kind of on the on the line of how many people really took advantage of this, more than four out of five of every five of those who borrowed directly from the government made little or no progress paying down their debt during the freeze. This is data from the New York Fed and only five percent paid down more than five thousand dollars. So really, people were taking the break that they could for making these payments. Definitely. I mean, I've spoken to countless borrowers who have really used this time to build their savings, to start retirement plans. Some people who have even purchased homes because being able to really divert what is, for most people, an average of $400 a month on their student loan payments into a savings and create a nest egg for a down payment has been a remarkable thing for a lot of folks. Before housing prices really kind of shot through the roof, the Fed was actually tracking an uptick in a new home purchases among people who had student loans. And most folks think it's a result of this pause. Yeah. Republicans, for the most part, didn't want to extend the moratorium. They wanted people to start making the payments. One of the arguments they make is that, you know, it benefits uh, wealthier people on this. Uh, But Democrats, for their part, they definitely were fighting for the extension and even wanted to go further than that. You know, they want President Biden to cancel a certain amount of this federal student debt that people have. The Republicans' argument in part was that if this pandemic pause on on student loan payments was done because the economy was sinking at the height of the pandemic, we are now actually having a pretty strong economy in terms of unemployment is down. Yes, inflation is up, but most people are experiencing a bump in wages. Why keep this going? For Democrats, especially for more progressive liberal Democrats, the idea of restarting payment in the midst of such high inflation Inflation that we haven't seen in 40 years just didn't seem to make sense. There are also quite a lot of Democrats who would like to see the president use his executive authority to forgive at least $50,000 per student loan borrower. Now, on the campaign trail, the president said he'd consider doing 10000 per borrower. He has said that he is looking into his actual legal authority to do that. He's been saying that for the last year. <laughs> People <laughs> right. are starting to lose uh, you know, faith that it'll actually happen. But, you know, there are a lot of folks that I've spoken with who are saying the fact that the president has done this extension till August 31st is kind of suspicious. Perhaps the idea here is we are kind of getting close to the midterms at that point in terms of the elections to gin up support among the base and to get voters out. Maybe he's trying to tie that to student debt forgiveness when the restart is set to come back in. I wouldn't necessarily bank on it. Um, (laughs) I'm always cautious because I don't want people to make decisions around their financial lives on a will he, won't he kind of thing. I think it's really wise for borrowers to use this additional time to figure out 
what is the best repayment plan for them, what can they afford, what will make it you know, palatable for them and their families as they have all these other costs to add this big bill back into the mix. So I'm hoping people do that yeah. during this time. Debt forgiveness, it's still on the table. If you talk to the White House, they will tell you it's still on the table, but it's not a done deal. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You know, it came up with an awkward question like, hey, who's this guy when you're talking to a woman? Or, hey, who's who's Mary when when you're talking to, you know, a hockey player whose mom's name is Mary? And (laughs) and that happens to him live on the radio. Joining us now is Lindsay Ellis, careers reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's talk about something kind of fun. The pandemic kind of plays a part in all this, but, you know, a lot of uh, people quit their jobs. A lot of people transitioned, you know, from working in the office to working at home. Everybody's on their cell phones. And what kind of started happening was a caller ID had started outing a lot of people. And uh, you ask in what way? Well, you know, people will call or you'll call somebody. It uh, maybe has a different name on the caller ID, maybe your parents name. And what we're finding out was a lot of younger people, not so young people, too, sometimes are still on their parents' phone plans. And so that was coming through on the caller ID. It uh, posed a lot of questions to a lot of people. So, uh, Lindsay, tell us a little bit about it. What did, what did we see with all this caller ID uh, craziness? It is a pretty funny story. So when you make calls from your cell phone plan, caller ID will sometimes show, you know, the name on the, the billing account. So if, if you're on your dad's plan, it would show up as your dad's name. It wasn't too much of a problem before the pandemic when people were using desk lines for work or at the early stages when, hey, you call a coworker, but they have, you know, your phone number saved as sort of, you know, its own contact overriding caller ID. But over the last few months, when employees were cold calling with recruiters or a new boss, you know, it came up with an awkward question like, hey, who's this guy when you're talking to a woman? Or, hey, who's who's Mary when when you're talking to, you know, a hockey player whose mom's name is Mary? And (laughs) and that happens to him live on the radio. Yeah, that was a great story. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, is uh, and full disclosure, I myself am still on my family's phone plan. We set it up a long time ago when we got grandfathered into unlimited data plan, which is an important thing why we didn't change. My wife is on her own family's data plan and we didn't get a joint one because of those reasons. We got grandfathered into such great deals. We didn't want to lose any of that. But I do pay my own portion of the bill. So I just want to say a key distinction. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, so in that sense, it makes sense. That is, is all good. But you do have a statistic in here talking about millennials, I guess, those 25 to 40, uh, about 12 percent of them still do have their parents paying their phone bill. So that's a little uh, iffy there. So I talked to a professor, actually, who's in his mid-30s, and he's still on a family plan, and he actually just started paying over Venmo. It was late last year because, you know, eventually his father asked. Um, he was saying, you know, I wasn't going to volunteer, but happy to do it now Now that I'm asked to do so. But I think the most recent payment was something like $63 and change. But I hear that actually a lot, right? I mean, when I was reporting this story, people were 
saying that they worried that leaving the plan would lose a great rate that they were grandfathered into or unlimited data like yours. And also just on a per line basis, some plans can be more expensive for for fewer people than more. You know, it just makes total sense to stay on those plans. You've been on them. You know, you're not changing your carrier service. Why would you uh, ruffle any feathers, right? Let, let's keep this going. If it's if this situation is working out, you know, this whole thing with the caller ID, uh, you know, that's kind of a funny aside to all this. And, you know, you had the key takeaway in the article, too. You know, if that's something that's happening to you, well, you got to go down to your phone carrier and make sure that at least that line reflects that you're the person that's on that line that's calling. You know, the, another art, uh, example you had in there was, you know, when you go buy a new phone plan or something like that, you know, you, all of a sudden now you have to call your parents and say, well, what's the account number? What's this? What's the password? Just so I can be doing that. I've been in that same boat as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, are you, have you ever had to have it happen where one of your parents doesn't pick up and you're sort of left at the store wondering, OK, well, how do I what do I do now? Yeah, yeah that's that's exactly what goes on. And, and you know, to everybody that, that that's kind of these small little inconveniences, I guess, that you got to go through. Right. But you did mention that the, the hockey player, that's a pretty funny one. If you could uh, tell us that that's a, so it was a Boston Bruins player, Derek Forbert. He's 30 years old. He's making millions of dollars. He calls into the radio station and and his mom's line uh, pops up. When I talked to him later, I asked, you know, what his reaction was. And he was like, I didn't I didn't even know caller ID was still a thing. But he's been on his parents plan. He he does tell me that he is the keeper of the family Netflix and Showtime account. So I think there's a little bit of parody there, maybe. And, and who's paying for what? But he was telling me the story of when he was in his 20s and playing in the minor leagues. I mean, the NHL plays in Canada and he would have to text his mom and say, hey, can you activate the international before I cross the border? So he's been aware of it, but I don't think he had realized that, you know, his mother's name would come up when he called into a line with with caller ID. Lindsay Ellis, careers reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. But it seems like this trend is really cementing that uh, phenomenon and to the point where a studio chief who's deciding whether or not to take the risk to release a film in what remains an uncertain marketplace can rely on young men more than really any other demographic. Joining us now is Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the return to movies right now and uh, the people that are really driving up the kind of resurgence of, of Hollywood of these big movies right now are young men. Obviously, they're kind of, uh, you know, not so at risk for COVID. So they're one, a group that's uh, very willing to get back out into the world. And really, all of the, the movie companies are just kind of catering from time as, you know, everybody's looking at all their release dates. I mean, they're going to go to the people that are showing up like I said, which are young men. So, Eric, tell us a little more about it. You're absolutely right. I mean, ever since theaters reopened following COVID, studio chiefs have really been looking at the data to try to figure out who is coming back. And a couple of lessons that they've learned is that older audiences, no surprise, are the most reluctant to go back into the theater. And women also are um, staying away. And so that leaves young men who have been showing up really quite regularly. And so if you look at the movies that have 
performed better than other releases in the past year and a half or so, they are movies that skew toward that demographic. So think of Spider-Man, No Way Home, or The Batman, or Uncharted, or as you mentioned, Morbius. These are movies that obviously before the pandemic were ruling the box office as well. I mean, we were in a bit of a superhero moment even before COVID. For sure, yeah. But it seems like this trend is really cementing that uh, phenomenon and to the point where a studio chief who's deciding whether or not to take the risk to release a film in what remains an uncertain marketplace can rely on young men more than really any other demographic. My producer, Victor, is a a very young man, and he just told me, too, he went to the movies too specifically to go see Morbius over this past weekend. So, uh, you know, when I saw this, uh, this article, I was like, it's proven, right? <laughs> Just in my own personal life, anecdotally, through my producer over here. You know, but what happens too is it really changes a lot of these strategies. So when executives are looking at who's turning out to the movies, they change release dates. They start putting other movies in a, a more prominent marketing scheme and really kind of changes the entertainment for everybody because now these are the movies that are being uh, bandied about. These are the movies that are uh, they're putting a lot of effort into. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're movies that can justify a theatrical release. That's the big difference is the box office overall is still really struggling. You referenced Victor, the producer, and I spoke to a a 14-year-old guy here in Los Angeles on um, Friday night, and he was just seeing Uncharted. And I said, well, you know, what else have you seen lately? And he had seen Spider-Man and Batman. And he, I think, thought that this was kind of a, a pretty casual hobby of his compared to everything else he's doing. But it really kind of puts him in the top maybe one percentile of moviegoers in the country because going to see more than one movie a year these days is is more and more unusual, let alone seeing six or seven. And distribution chiefs tell me that that is another key difference is that the frequent moviegoers have returned post-COVID. But the casual moviegoers, the people who might venture out once or twice a year, they, it seems, haven't returned. And now the big question will be, will they ever? You know, I myself was a pretty frequent moviegoer pre-pandemic. And obviously, you just kind of got out of the habit of going. I've been to a number of movies since uh, things have started opening up, but I've not gone with that frequency that I used to go back just yet. And I don't know. I I don't know if that changes for me. You know, I'm uh, very comfortable at home. The streaming stuff is, uh, I mean, you know, we just went through the Oscars, right? A number of streaming movies were nominated and won awards. So you're getting just as good entertainment now in the comfort of your home. You're absolutely right. The the rise of streaming is the major component here. And during the pandemic, what was already a priority at studios became the priority. So every major studio in Hollywood, except for one, has its own in-house streaming service. So Universal has Peacock, Warner Brothers has HBO Max, Disney has Disney Plus, and so on. And so if you're running one of those studios, you have several options. You can send the big movie to the movie theater, but you can also make smaller romantic comedies or dramas and send them to your streaming service and try to use them to sell subscriptions. Yeah, definitely. I I made a note too with that because, you know, in the... Back in the day, it used to be a, a girlfriend or a wife getting her, her guy to go see a rom-com with them. Now it's the other way around. The execs are betting on these younger men to get their girlfriends to go see these action movies, these superhero movies, maybe their parents or grandparents. You know, so <laughs> the, that whole dynamic has kind of shifted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the 15-year-old I met here in L.A., he had taken his girlfriend to see Uncharted. I didn't get a chance to ask her if that was her choice. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. I'll come to think of it. But you're right. I think the studio executives are hoping that these young men will function as something of an early adopter. 
and start to bring more people out to the auditoriums because, to be honest, it's still pretty dicey out there. I mean, these these movies we're talking about are making a lot of money, but it's really a David and Goliath situation where there's not much left for the others. Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.